If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to the book of Acts. Let's go to chapter 6. This morning we want to look at uh, the church uh, chooses leadership. It's interesting what we've seen so far. The church is on the move. The church is growing leaps and bounds. At this time, scholars believe the church is somewhere around 18, 20,000. Since Acts chapter 2, the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon the church. It's not been without trials, tribulation, hardship, and pain. In fact, this morning, uh, we're going to see the third persecution as Stephen is taken uh, into custody. But now we come into the problem area uh, when you have a church, especially a church that size. You're always going to have murmuring and complaining. You're always going to have, well, why are they doing this and why are not we doing this over here? And so let me give you just a little bit of background that comes into the picture here. Luke, our writer, turns away from the battle between the Sanhedrin and the church leadership, which is the 12 apostles at this time, to introduce us to two groups within the Jerusalem church. They were the Greek Jews, and these were called the Hellenistic or the Hellenist Greeks, and the Hebrew Jews. Uh, We may be surprised that these two groups existed within the first uh, church age, but these groups are crucial uh, to the history of the book of Acts. It's important we identify uh, these Hebrew and Hellenistic Jews, for it will help us to understand the situation that's taking place there in the Jerusalem church. Eventually, James will be the pastor there. And how the gospel message is being preached. And remember, we've shared about trials so many times. When you go to James chapter 1, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. God's working in and through your life, even though sometimes... We don't understand the trials. When you go to uh, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, Jesus is writing seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And we know that one of those churches is the church at Smyrna. And she was called the persecuted church. These seven churches identify the churches uh, through church history. Even in our church, we'll have those that are part of the Smyrna church those that are persecuted, those that are suffering, those that are ill, those that are going through hardship. And so we see the church at Smyrna, and the more they crushed her, the more they pressured her, the more they persecuted her, greater the fragrance. And so we see the early church here. The trials are there, and now the murmuring and complaining. But through it all, God is working. Most scholars divide the Grecian and the Hebrew Jews along the language or the geographic lines. The Hellenistic Jews are those who speak mainly Greek and formerly lived outside of Judea and Galilee, excuse me, uh, but they had settled now in Jerusalem. Some were retired, some were working there as if it were uh, there in the homeland now. Nevertheless, they still have a natural affection with the land of the Jewish dispersion from which they came. The Hebrew Jews are those who speak mainly Aramaic at this time. Remember that Jesus' language basically was Aramaic. And these were born in Jerusalem and Judea. And so a parallel in modern Jerusalem would be the distinction between the Jews and those that were born in the land of Israel 
and those who migrated to Israel and the other nations, to the Hellenistic Jews in the church uh, that attended Greek-speaking synagogues before they became Christians. The Hebrew Christians attended the synagogues that where Aramaic was being speaking, spoken, that is. And so, you know, as I was preparing this, and I was, I was looking at the background, I was thinking of what's going on in Israel today and with the Prime Minister Netanyahu because of what's happening around the world, the attacks upon the Jews, and especially in Europe, we're hearing more and more, and you're going to hear more. He has opened the doors. He said to all these Jews, come home. Come to your homeland. We will take care of you. And I was reading an article uh, that businessmen, listen to this, they've given over billion, a couple of billion dollars to just supply these Jews to fly home. And they will take care of them there. I told my wife, we need to find out if we got any Jewish background. I want to go, not just for 12 days. I want to live there. That would be my dream. But God is calling his people, and it speaks about that in the book of Ezekiel. It's been happening uh, throughout history, but we see since the turn of the century of uh, the Zionist movement, they've gone back, and they're continually uh, going back. And they'll ask the Jews, why have you moved back to the homeland? You were never part of it. You went into dispersing, and you've gone across the world. Your families are, you know, part of Europe. You're part of different places in Europe. But why this desire to come to Israel? And they'll tell you the same thing. I don't know how to explain it, but it's inside. And it's like something calling me, something grabbing a hold of me. It's like a magnet. Well, we know that's the Holy Spirit. And this is the church, the body of Christ. And so at this time, through the murmuring and complaining, watch what God's going to do. This murmuring and complaining takes place. Nobody's taking care of the Grecian widows, but you're taking care of the Hebrew widows. That's almost common sense in the church. But the Holy Spirit would use this to develop the leadership of the church. If there's about 20,000 people, uh, we need to understand the leadership of the church. We need to understand that there's needs in the body of Christ. When you go back, uh, Moses, we're, we're reminded in the book of Exodus, in chapter 31 and chapter 32, you need to go back and study it. It was a time that they were building the Ark of the Covenant. And Moses had gone before God. God gave him instructions. And then uh, the Lord said, go back, and I want you to get this man by the name of Beziel, and I want you to use him because he's spirit-filled. I have touched his life. And when you study that, uh, the caption in my Schofield Bible says that this is a spirit-filled craftsman. These were guys that were going to build the tabernacle. But they were inspired by God and filled by the Holy Spirit. And so that's the same with us in our workplace. Whatever we might do, Lord, uh, fill me with your spirit. Lord, I want to be a good uh, employee. I want to be a good boss. Lord, I want to be a good owner. Whatever it might be, I want to be led by the power of God's spirit. But it took a trial. It took a murmuring and complaining. And God says, okay, now I got your attention. And so that's what's happening here. 
In chapter 6 of the book of Acts, we begin in verse 1. The caption of my Bible says, uh, Stephen, chosen to serve. He's the first deacon of the church. Now, we're going to continue with Stephen in the next couple of chapters, and you're going to see something interesting. This young man that was chosen to be the, uh, the first deacon of the church, there's going to be six others. There'll be a total of seven guys, people that are filled with the Spirit. But what an example of Stephen. He's not only the first deacon of the church, but he becomes the first martyr. I'm speaking about the New Testament church. He's going to die uh, because of who he believes in. And we're seeing that in our third world countries today. And we know, as we've mentioned many times, Pastor Saeed is a good example to us there in an Iranian prison. And so let's begin here in verse 1, Acts chapter 6. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenistic Jews or the Greek Jews because their widows, listen, were being neglected in the daily distribution. And again, there's always those complaints. I've shared with you many stories that happened. One of my best friends, he had a beautiful little church going. And he says for years, uh, he had mom, one of the moms in the, in the body of Christ, just sitting right there. She sat in the same place. Most of you do the same thing. And then you come up to the person that's sitting there in your chair and you go, what's up? My chair. We do that. We're just human nature. Well, mom could see her son that was lined up right here. He played guitar constantly, constantly. And so she loved it. She'd go to church. Oh, there's my son. Well, one day they get a new guitar player, and the pastor or the leader of the music ministry says, move over and let Johnny be right here. And, you know, he moved over. didn't see no problem. Mom came in. Oh, don't move my son. And she literally, listen to this. Long story short, she left the church. Because they moved her son over two feet. And her son was devastated. And so there's always the murmuring and complaining. This is what's happening here now. Uh, there was no welfare system at the time. Uh, there was no programs uh, to take care of the widows. The responsibility fell upon uh, the church. And we need to bring this to your attention. When Satan is not effective in the outward attacks of the church, because Peter and John have been attacked greatly. Peter and John had already gone before the consul. Know this, that Satan will then take the inside approach. Yet through the murmuring and complaining that was made known to the apostles, God is going to do a work. If Satan can't work outside, the devils can't work outside, then he'll come inside the church. And many times the greatest work that the enemy will do will be inside the church. And so there has to be a decision made here. There has to be additional men and women that are going to be helping uh, the 12. I mean, 12 men in charge of 20,000, 15,000, that's a lot. And it's not easy to take. I want you to write this down as some homework. Back in Exodus chapter 18, Moses was taking all the judging upon himself. From the early morning to the late night, his father-in-law, Jethro, a Midianite, a heathen, said to him, the thing that you do is not good. For the people need to hear 
fresh. And I want you to see this. We're saying there's about 18, 20,000 in the early church. In the time of the great exodus, and in the time that Moses is proclaiming the good news to the people, they estimate two to three million. Two to three million. And listen, Moses would get up at daybreak and begin counseling, begin judging, begin making decisions. And he would do it to the evening. And finally Jethro saw that and he says, hey, the thing that you're doing is not good. It's going to kill you. And what about the people that don't get to see you that day? And I was thinking about the whole situation. So you didn't get to see Moses at 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 o'clock, 12 noon. Finally, you get to see Moses as the sun's coming down. I'm thinking of the console that you might get. Okay, what's your problem? Well, this is how, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Here, take two aspirins. You know, the leadership needs rest too. And so they appointed. And go back and read the story. It's so beautiful. In, in Exodus chapter 18, verse 21, uh, God tells Moses, select from all the people, able men such as fear God, and men of truth, hating uh, covetousness, and place such over this congregation. And so now the Hellenistic Jews are complaining, uh, they're murmuring. Listen, their complaint is the Hebrews are getting more than the, the Greek widows. They were being neglected and the distribution. Now, the neglect and the distribution in the Greek tells us it could be physical, or it could be spiritual needs. It could be physical. I'm hungry. I need to get fed. I need a place to stay. Or it could be the spiritual needs. And Stephen is going to be very capable of sharing the word of God. But the murmuring and complaining. Uh, listen to verse 2. Then the twelve... The apostles summoned the multitude of the disciples, and they said, it is not desirable that we should have uh, the, leave the word of God and to serve tables. Now, please understand the hearts of the 12 apostles. They are not saying we don't dirty our hands in the area of menial tasks at the hand, the work of a servant, but with the 12 men again to take care of all the needs they need some help. And so the teaching, the counseling, uh, the physical needs, uh, just as we spoke about in the time of Moses. So the needs are there. And wisdom of God. And so the 12 speak up. And look at verse 3. Therefore, brethren, uh, seek out from among you uh, seven men of good reputation. And so here's the qualifications. Men that are full of the Holy Spirit, men that are full of wisdom, of whom we may appoint over this business. Here's the direction from the 12. I believe that Peter and John would have been the spokesmen. Uh, Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, and he says, then James, James becomes uh, the pastor of, uh, of the Jerusalem church, and then he says, and Cephas and John, who seem to be the pillars in the church. And so the credentials to be in leadership are very important here. Choose men from the body of Christ. First of all, 
They better be true believers in Christ. They better be men of good reputation. Men of honest report. That's what it tells us in the King James. In the church, obviously, and what about outside of the church? You know, I have found through the years, uh, people come into the church and they can act Christianese. They have the doctrine down. They have the speech down. Uh, they have the hand gestures down. I mean, it's all there. You can become mechanical. But how do you act outside of the walls of the church? That's what I always wonder. I mean, are you Christian just here uh, two, two and a half hours on a Sunday morning? Or are you Christian 24-7? And it was very important to me when I came to Saving Grace that uh, not only I'd be a Christian at church, but I'd be a Christian at the heathen place that I was working at. Because I was part of that. They used to come to me for gambling. They used to come to me for drugs. They used to come to me uh, to set up, you know, pool games at the, at the bar. I mean, so I, I was known. And so there has to be this change, this transformation. Men of honest report. Men of good reputation, not just in the church. But what about outside the church? Are we a good witness outside of the church? Is the Holy Spirit filling you just here in the church? But what about at home? What about at play? What about at school? What about at work? And so it is important not just to say we're a Christian. It's not important just to be a Christian here at the chapel. But outside the walls, very, very important. And so they were looking for seven guys that would fit this criteria. Look at verse 4 now. But we will give ourselves, and please understand the position of the 12, but we will give ourselves continually uh, to prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. And I'd just like to say I thank the Lord uh, for the leadership that we have here at the chapel. Many times when I'm uh, in my study and such, and I get a call, and somebody needs prayer, and and a visitation up at the hospital. And if I can't go, I can call somebody. And I can send them. And it's just so beautiful to see that. That's part of the body of Christ. It's not that the apostles didn't want to. But again, trying to take care of, you know, 18, 20,000. Imagine that. In teaching ministry, as Ron so beautifully mentioned, that's what we do here at Calvary Chapel. But we will give ourselves continually uh, to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse 5 goes on, and the same please, listen, of the whole multitude of the congregation, and they chose a Stephen. He's the first man, a man full of faith, a man full of the Holy Spirit. It's rhetorical. And they also chose Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, uh, Timon, and, and Paranes, and Nicholas, a proselyte, or one that came to Judaism. He was from Antioch. But I want you to see this. It's interesting when you go through the history of the scriptures, begin even in Genesis, always look at the number seven, how God works in a multitude of sevens. Sevens are always his number. And so choose seven men that are born again of the Holy Spirit. Seven men that are filled with the Holy Spirit. 
seven men that are filled with the wisdom of God, that they would have such faith to move mountains. When the Holy Spirit is working, the response will always be positive. And so the multitudes that would have been there, this sounds good. This will take care of uh, some of the murmuring and complaining. This will take care of the Hellenistic uh, Jews that were being neglected. And so the response would be positive. Why? Because it's God-ordained. Uh, they chose Stephen, uh, the first deacon of the church. The word is diakonos uh, in the Greek, and it means to be a servant or a minister, an ordained lay officer in many Christian churches. Vine's dictionary says this, uh, the word diakoneos uh, means to be a waiter of tables. It means to one that runs errands, another one that attends uh, to the task at hand. But listen to this, because this is the word diakonos, the word diakonia. It means not only a servant, which they are a servant, but in the process of being a servant, they're a Christian teacher. They're a Christian pastor. I'm not exempt. None of these other pastors are exempt. We are all called uh, to serve the Lord. The beauty of Stephen, he serves the Lord physically, emotionally, and spiritually, I'm sure. But the time is going to come that he's going to serve the Lord through his death. And Paul reminds us at the Corinthian church, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Now, Jesus' ministry has been three and a half years. We're not that many years into the early church. How long has Stephen been a Christian? And yet God calls him home. What about John the Baptist? He was martyred also. That was before Christ had gone to the cross. Stephen's name, listen, in the Greek, means crown. He was a crown that God was going to use. He was a crown that God was going to expose to uh, the leadership uh, of the Jerusalem Sanhedrin. You see, they were the 71 elect, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. Uh, they were the epitome. They were everything. They ran the show with Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest. But it was all about financial gain. It wasn't about the people. And so when the church begins here, people are coming to Christ. Jesus did. Jesus had 40-day post-resurrection. Jesus already ascended into heaven. The church is taking off now since the book of Acts chapter 2. They're not the same. Trials have already come. Now the murmuring and complaining. Look at verse 6. Whom they set before the apostles. These are the seven. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. I love this. Notice not just the appointing of these men, but they laid hands on them. And they prayed for them. They prayed the prayer of faith. Uh, they prayed that God would place his hand upon them for this work. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. As you saw this morning, we prayed for Pastor Cliff. We asked some of the leadership, come forward. Lay hands upon Pastor Cliff. We believe that strongly. And we like to anoint with oil. We've done that several times here at the fellowship. 
Wednesdays is a lot more open for us, and so we're able to uh, pray longer. We're able to anoint them with oil and to pray the prayer of faith. And so they brought these seven guys up. Now, we just get a short term of qualifications of the deacons here. Now, I want you to turn. You should be at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 8 with me. We're not going to take time this morning to go up above, and you get to read the qualifications of the elders. But one of the things I have found in Calvary Chapel, uh, really, there, there's only one difference uh, between an elder and a deacon in Calvary Chapel, and that is that the elder is apt to teach. And the deacons are usually and generally not teachers, but they're servants. But so are the elders, the presbyterals of the church. Now, what I love about our ministry here, some of the guys that teach here don't even have the title of a deacon. And some of the guys that do teach here have the title of a deacon. They don't have the title of an elder. And maybe they don't teach, but God's called them to teach. And so you work with what the Spirit of God has for you. And so listen to the qualifications that Paul brings forth to young Timothy as he was a young pastor in Ephesus. In verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 3, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued. Not given too much wine. Now, I'm not against a leader such as a deacon if he wants to have a glass of wine. I'm not against if an, a leader such, a, such as a deacon wants to have a glass of beer. That's not my problem. My problem is, does it go into a second glass, a third glass, a fourth glass? Well, you know... In Timothy, it says, and we're quick to quote, it says here, not much wine. Well, you know, a gallon's not much for me. I've heard them all. Another passage later, because Timothy had some problems with his stomach. And Paul says, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Trust me, every wino I've ever ministered to knows that verse. My dad used to quote it verbatim. And I go, Dad, that's not what it's saying. Yeah, my stomach's always bothering me. <laughs> and so the leadership here, speaking of the deacon, is not to have much wine, not to be greedy for money, filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. And again, then let them serve as deacons, diaconales, being found blameless. How are they going to be tested again? How do you act at work? How do you act at school? Listen, how do you act at home? One of the greatest things that we can do, I want to know about you. I want to know about your husband, your wife. You have children. They go into the children's ministry. I'll go to the children's teacher. And I'll ask them, what do they say about mom and dad? Kids don't hold back. Kids tell the truth. And so mom and dad might be telling us one story. <laughs> the Sunday school teacher's getting another story. It happens all the time. And so the importance 
of being tested, yes, in the body of Christ, but what about outside of the body of Christ? Obviously, these seven uh, fit the, the criteria. Look at verse 11. Likewise, their wives, how important, must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all things. God does not need fighting and murmuring and complaining in the church. It's enough that it does happen. But in the leadership, in verse 12 and 13, the conclusion, let the deacons, the diakonos, be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own household well. If they're not taking care of the house, the home, how are they going to take care of the church home? How are they going to take care of the church body? In verse 13, for those who have served well as the deacons, and they also have deaconesses, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul wrote to Timothy. And it's a beautiful, you know, qualification list to go through. And anytime we appoint, anytime we lay hands on, anytime we ordain, we take them through these passages. But before they're even to that place, pretty much so, they've passed the test. Let's go back to our text. Look at verse 7 now. And then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. God is in the move in the midst of trials and tribulation. God is in the move in the midst of murmuring and complaining. Notice what it says. There was a great multiplying in Jerusalem. And then a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. These are the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem. These were the spiritual leaders of the Jews at the time. They saw, they heard, they witnessed. And your witness speaks for you. Your witness goes before you. And I could just hear some of these guys. Hey, I know this guy, Stephen. I know what he's about. He's all about the movement. He's all about Jesus of Nazareth. And so your testimony goes before you. And no matter what position you have, here's priests. They were coming to Christ. Many of those that were part of the Sanhedrin uh, came to saving grace. We know that Joseph of Arimathea was a solid Christian. We know that Nicodemus was a solid Christian. We know that Paul the Apostle, which was Saul of Tarsus, eventually becomes a solid Christian. And these guys were all part of the religious factor in the time. And so God is on the move. Uh, look at verse 8 now. The caption of my Bible, Stephen, he's been appointed, right? And the other six have been appointed, laid hands on, prayed for. But now the caption says, Stephen, accused of blasphemy. Uh, right away, the enemy comes in. And that's one of the things that we share with leadership. And that is, listen, you're going to take this task. We believe God's called you. But we want you to know also, you're going to go through trials. Oh, yeah, I can handle it. No, no, you're going to go through trials. You're going to be tested. And especially at work. Man, once you open your mouth at work, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm going to church, praise the Lord. Ooh, you put a sign on yourself. And you better be ready. I'm telling you, 
I worked in the machine shops for uh, 16 years. And I was the boss. I was uh, in the leadership. And, And they knew me. And once I declared I was a believer, they watched me for a while. And then the attacks. It's not... It's not a pretty sight when you walk into the bathroom and we had two or three urinals and my name was written in each urinal. And I go, you have the audacity to get your pen and go into a urinal and write my name and then you take that pen and put it back in your pocket? I go, you're the one with the problem, not me. Then you're going to go home and shake hands with your wife and kiss her and oh, man. But this is the attack. But at the same time, we would get little notes And they would say, Bob, pray for my mom. She's sick. We get another note, pray for my dad. He's dying of cancer. Yet we were being ridiculed, but they knew the source. They knew that we would pray. And so the trials are going to be there. Stephen is ready for it. Look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith. I love this. And full of power. This is that dunamis power. And did great wonders and signs among the people. Notice more qualifications are fulfilled uh, through these men of God. Uh, They're filled with overflowing in faith. Filled with overflowing in in this power. The word is dunamis. It's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. That Jesus told them. The Holy Spirit is coming. Look at, I'm going to just read it to you. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses uh, to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so proof text, the power of the Holy Spirit. It's come upon the twelve. And now it's come upon the seven. It's not saying that the others don't have the Holy Spirit. They all have the Spirit. But these have been called to the ministry. These have been added to the ministry. Listen, and they did great miracles, signs and wonders among the people there in Jerusalem. This dunamis power, the word power is dunamis, where we get our our word dynamics, explosives, something that just pops out. And that's what was happening to the early church. When you speak about dunamis power, it's the enabling of God's divine power. It's the ability of having God's divine power. It's the strength of God that you need. It's this divine power that you need, that I need. God enables us. God enables you. And since the book of Acts in chapter 2, this early church has been on the move. It's not been without trial. It's not been without testing. And then we're going to see, finally, martyrdom comes to the early church. In verse 9, it goes on, Then there arose a sum uh, from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. Scholars believe these are men that were formerly slaves that had come to Judaism. They were Cyrenians, they were Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia in Asia. And these were disputing with Stephen. We're going to see that. Now, it's interesting. I I believe these men 
were special in their synagogues or else they wouldn't be there. I believe they could have been sent there. And for this reason, now the Sanhedrin is using them. <laughs> they come to dispute with Stephen. There's no indication, now watch this, that Stephen was smarter than them, more educated than them, or, or he was a better debater than these Jews. <laughs> Jews that were renowned. What did Stephen have? Listen to this that they did not have the power of God's Holy Spirit. They came to dispute with Stephen. The word to dispute, they came to debate, most likely, obviously, the Scriptures. No doubt, they came to debate about this man, Jesus, whom they claimed to be the Messiah. And they would bring it forth. Stephen would bring it forth and declare that Jesus is God. He is the incarnate God. That's what the Gospel of John chapter 1 is all about. And no doubt in my mind that Stephen told them because this is the core of Christianity is the resurrection. If there be no resurrection, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, we're all men and women most miserable. We come to church and we play church, but unless Jesus rose again from the dead, and that's what separates him from all the other Men and women that claim to be the Messiah. I was listening to Pastor Skip on the radio. He says currently, and I don't know where he gets his statistics, but it makes a lot of sense. Right now, in the world, over 3,000 who claim to be the Messiah. I go, 3,000? Really? Why don't they all get in a ship and go to one of these islands Call it Messiah Island. Have your church. Have everything you want. Make a, you know, whatever you want. A fellowship hall. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I get frustrated with these guys because all these people that claim to be Messiah, all these people to claim to be deity, have never died on the cross and had never risen from the dead. That's what qualifies Christ. From all. Oh, there's been those in time past also. But listen, here, the witness, the testimony of Stephen and the other six is incredible. What's taking place here? I, I don't doubt that they brought this up. In Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. The promise of the Holy Spirit, this is prophecy, would be poured out, and it was poured out in the book of Acts in chapter 2. Not all believed. That's still the problem today. Not all people believe, yet people believe in their traditions, their rituals, their rites, their customs, the traditions that many times are, are, are man-made rather than the Word of God. Notice those from Cilicia now, at the bottom of verse 9. Those that would come from Cilicia were those that are mentioned from Cilicia? Were they from the synagogue that Solitarsus attended? We're going to read about Solitarsus. God changes his name to Paul the Apostle, but he was a, a man of renown. 
He was a student of Gamaliel that we mentioned last week. He was part of the Sanhedrin that we speak about constantly. These guys knew. Did Paul direct them? Hey, I want you to go to Jerusalem. There's a problem there. Address it. Come on, we have clout. We have authority. And yet later, Saul of Tarsus is called to the ministry. We'll get to that in Acts chapter uh, 9. Look at verse 10 now. And they were not able to resist. Listen to this. They were not able to resist the wisdom of the Spirit which he spoke. In other words, Stephen had their attention span. These religious leaders from the various synagogues that we mentioned in verse, in verse 9, that is, were not able to resist, listen, to oppose or withstand the wisdom of God that came forth from Stephen. The Holy Spirit spoke through him. Remember we shared last week? When we... We shared about the teacher that had come uh, to Jerusalem. He was part of it. Gamaliel was called the Rabban. It was a title that was given to seven, seven rabbis through the history. Seven. He was one of them. The Rabban was the teacher, was the special teacher, was the anointed teacher. Uh, all the other rabbis were teachers. This guy was one of the chief teachers. They respected him because they were ready to kill Peter and John. Remember what he said? Listen, you guys from the Sanhedrin, you guys are the elect of Israel. If this movement is of man, it will die. But if this movement is of God, you're not going to be able to quench it. And he gives two examples of two men, insurrectionists at the time. We didn't know much about them, but Josephus writes of them. They tried to come against the rulership, the leadership, and it did not work. They were quenched. And so here's Stephen, and here's the other uh, six, and yet God was going before them. <laughs> they could not withstand Stephen's conviction as he brought forth the word of God, how? With power, dunamis power. He was enabled by God. He had the ability from God. He had the power from God. He had the strength from God. Look at verse 11. Uh, then they secretly, they're not finished yet. Then they secretly induced men, listen to this, uh, to say, we have heard him speak, speaking of Stephen, of blasphemous words against Moses and God. Interesting to me. In other words, this is my take. Hey, if the truth does not work, let's lie. Let's lie. And I want you to take heed to this. That seems to be the mentality in our society today. Our last child, when she was at school here in Mayfield, we found her to be lying to us. And I go, Miha, we, we, your other sisters didn't lie to us. We don't expect you to lie to us. You know what she said? I never forgot. I tell her now she's in her 30s, and she has a position at work, and people trust her, and people go to her for answers, 
And I bring that up to her. Do you lie anymore? Oh, Dad, come on. When I asked her, why do you lie? She said, everybody does it. And that's so true. They see it in the sitcoms. They see it in the movies. They see it in the video games. They hear it in the songs. Kids are compulsive liars. Now, praise God for the kids that are serving God. But everybody just lies. Look at our government. I'm sorry. They say one thing, they do another. It's interesting. And so they induce men to begin their lies. Notice that they induced them, they persuaded these men to lie. We have personally heard this man, Stephen, say blasphemous things against the law, which was speaking against Moses and against the Father. And against the Father. Turn to Matthew chapter 26 real quick. In Matthew chapter 26, um, look at verse 57. The same accusations that they were bringing against Stephen and the other men, they brought him against Jesus. Now, I, I love the fact that the accusations that came against my Christ are the accusations that come against me. That's what Stephen should have been feeling in his heart. Uh, Matthew 26, look at verse 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away uh, to see Caiaphas, excuse me, the high priest where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Uh, but Peter followed him at a distance uh, to the high priest's courtyard. And when he had... Uh, when he went in and sat with the servants to see at the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all of the consuls sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. There is the storyline right there. But found none. Listen, even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last they found two witnesses and they came forward. There's an old saying. Everybody has a price. Hey, we want you to witness against this Christ, this so-called Messiah. We're going to give you X amount of dollars. Well, we're going to add to that a little bit more. And they, they could have gone to extremes. Now you're talking. You're going to give me that much money? You're going to bribe me that far? I have something to say. Look at verse 61 and said, uh, this fellow, speaking of Christ, said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. He was speaking about his body, that he would resurrect again. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? Uh, what, is these, what is it that these men testify against you? Speak up. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us, if you are the Christ, the Son of God, the Christos, the anointed one, uh, the Messiah. And Jesus said, he does respond. It is as you say. Ooh, radical statement. It is as you say. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see me, uh, the Son of Man, uh, sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. 
speaks about his ascension. Then he speaks about his return uh, to earth. In verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes and saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. Uh, the word blasphemy basically speaks of one that uh, speaks of profane things against sacred things. Verse 66, what do you think? And they answered and they said, he is deserving of death, speaking of Christ. Then they spat on his face, beat him, and others mocked him with, and, and struck him with the palms of their hand. Verse 68, the conclusion, saying, prophesy to us now, Mr. Christ, who hit you? There's another passage of scripture. They took a bag and they put it over Jesus' head and they punched him. If you be the son of God, tell us who hit you. The Bible says they pulled at his beard. I mean, they ridiculed him. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53 that he was unrecognizable of the beating that he went through. In verse 12, now let's continue here. And they stirred up the people. They're ready to rock and roll now. They stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and they came upon him. They seized him, and they brought him to the council. We're speaking about Stephen now. That's exactly what they did to Christ. This is the third persecution in the early church. Peter and John previously were one and two. Twice they were taken in. If you're taking notes back in Acts chapter 4, verse 3, Peter and John were arrested. Then they were released, or the angel released them. Then in Acts chapter 5, verse 18, they were arrested again. And then here now, in Acts chapter 6, verse 12, Stephen, the first deacon of the church, is taken hold of. <laughs> Notice uh, they stirred up the people, riled them up, and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him. I like that word, upon him. It's a word, sunorapazo, where we get our word harpazo, which we understand is the rapture of the church, the great snatching away, and that's what they did to Stephen here. But it was not the rapture. They snatched him away because they want to uh, persecute him. Listen to verse 13, what we were speaking about Christ. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and against the law. They gathered more lies, more hypocrisies, this time that Stephen had come against the temple. <laughs> the temple was everything to the Jew. Herod's temple took over 46 years to build. It was a great edifice. Plus, they game against the law. It's interesting to me, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, because they did the same to Jesus, Jesus said, do not think that I come to destroy the law. I did not come to destroy the law of the prophets, but I did come to destroy. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He came to complete the law. Jesus becomes the complete sacrifice once and for all. The lies that were being said now of Stephen. Look at verse 14 and 15. We come to the conclusion. 
For we have heard him. We had heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Let me give you a few verses here that go with this. In John chapter 2, in verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus was speaking about his death and his resurrection. In Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2, it's a chapter concerning the last days. In verse 1, then Jesus arose, or Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the building of the temple. It was everything. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? He's talking about the great edifice of the temple. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. We know historically and biblically that in 70 AD, Titus and the Roman army went in and there was three great sieges against Jerusalem. And eventually, the storyline goes that a, a drunken soldier or a soldier purposely set some flaming swords and the temple caught fire. You know, what's interesting to me is that you put such an emphasis on this temple, I can destroy it just like that. And we know historically that they tore down all the stones. And trust me, some of the stones are the size of that wall right there. We've seen them when we go to Israel. Massive, massive stones. And when you sit at the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem, you see the stones that have been tumbled down. And so you cannot deny it. Verse 15, the conclusion. And all who sat in the council, listen to this, looking steadfastly at him. Speaking of Stephen, and what did they see? The face as of the face of an angel. I believe they were witnessing the Shekinah glory of God that was radiating from Stephen. The glory of the Lord that was in that room. The same glory that radiated from Moses when he came down from the mountain. After receiving the tablets of the law, the glory of God was on his face. Very visible upon the face of Moses. Go back and study Exodus chapter 34. It says that the face of Moses shone forth. I want people to see Christ in me. I hope you want people to see Christ in you. Stephen was such a man. His witness was there. The glory of God was on this man. What they witnessed was Stephen's countenance, that it was perfect, that it had peace. He was a man of confidence. Yes, he was a man of trials, but Stephen's reflection was that of Moses. When Moses comes down the hill, even Aaron and the rest of the group, they were like, Moses! Turn the light off. And we know they veiled him. The glory of God. You know, back in the Jesus movement in Southern California, I still remember, you know, uh, people would say, there's an aura about him. 
There's an aura about her. And I've never really understood that. Because before I was a Christian, if I was at Santa Anita Racetrack and my horse won, ooh, you would have seen aura. <laughs> I was rejoicing at the finish line. So be careful. Be careful. When the Aggies win, I, oh, glory, hallelujah. Because they don't win that often. But this morning, before we close, they needed help. And they chose seven men filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with wisdom, filled with faith. Men that they knew were going to do the work of God. We have some of them here. Now, I want to just share this. In the next couple of weeks, it's interesting that this teaching has come about. Because in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be ordaining uh, deacons in our church and, and elders in our church. And everybody can be one of these. And so if the Lord's spoken to you, honestly, come and talk to me. We'll sit down, we'll talk. But make sure you're going to do what God's called you to do. Make sure that you'll be a true deacon a true servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's all stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for uh, the word of God that Isaiah said will not come back void. And so, Lord, we thank you for uh, just how the Holy Spirit worked in the early church. We've seen the trials already, but now is the third persecution. And, and in the midst of that, they chose seven men filled with the Spirit of God. As Moses uh, chose men that were Spirit-filled to do the work of the tabernacle. And so, Father, we pray this morning, uh, before we conclude, maybe there's somebody here uh, and you've never come to Christ, I want to give you that opportunity. If you'd like to come to Saving Grace, I'll, I just want to say a simple prayer. And you just need to acknowledge by raising your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come up. If that's you this morning, please raise your hand real quick. Anybody here before we close? Praise God, then we're all believers. Let's continue. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity uh, to come to saving grace. And Lord, we thank you for the word that will not come back void. And so, Father, we ask you to go before us now, Lord. We ask you to bless the offerings as you've given to us. We give back a portion. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name. We pray, and we all agree by saying amen.